If you're like me and you're not so great at planning ahead when it comes to travel, you have to try Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight is an app that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute, up to seven days in advance. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or for indulging in a little staycation. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So what are you waiting for? Get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. And welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com. I'm joined by Ben Lindbergh, who's really torn up after Davidson's just, I mean, it was a really dramatic, but also really crushing 0-2 in College Station. So to help uh, spread the load a little bit and preview the Major League Baseball Rule 4 draft, we're bringing in Fangraph's lead prospect writer, Eric Longenhagen. Hi, guys. How are you? It's quite a consolation to me that we are still getting to talk about college baseball players in some capacity to it's the only thing that's keeping me going. I went to the Fayetteville Regional to start the thing off, and it was my first SEC sporting event in person. And I have to tell you, like, it's true. It feels different. There's a different vibe about the way people consume sports down there. Fayetteville in general is kind of a strange place. So it yeah, just means more, as the as the saying goes. I guess so. to a certain sect of people. I walked into I walked into a breakfast place in Fayetteville and thought I had walked through a portal to like Brooklyn or Portland. There was like a six foot two girl with a Stratocaster playing sad songs at 9 a.m. while people sip coffee. And then you walk half a block up the street and you're on campus and there are people who think that like camouflage is fashionable. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the the Ozarks. Arkansas is, I mean, they had that uh, that Missouri State game that went until like three o'clock in the morning local time. I'm uh-huh. like, <laughs> yeah. And like nobody left and nobody left. And they were like big schools like Clemson had nobody there for like the midday games that didn't involve Clemson, which is Pretty much, I mean, normally that's how a regional works, but mm. I, I just can't imagine staying at, at a baseball game until three o'clock in the morning, and like thousands of crazy Ozarkers did. So that's fun. I mean, Missouri State and Arkansas had that crazy super regional a couple years ago where Missouri State couldn't host. So I would be up for like a yearly rivalry series between Missouri State and Arkansas. And oh my God, Ben's asleep already. So let's talk about the <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the draft. Yeah, yeah. We're, uh, we're, we're talking to you on the day before the draft. Maybe people are listening to this on the first day of the draft. You used to cover the draft for ESPN. Now you cover all prospects for Fangrass, but you're focusing on the draft right now. So for people who follow this very casually and like me, hear about players when they get to double A or so, unless they're really extraordinary and don't really put faces to names before that, can you give us just a general overview of this class? How does it stack up to some recent ones? What are the strengths and weaknesses? Sure. Um, yeah, it's it's probably a tick below average class in general, certainly on depth. It was hard to get to 100 names on my own this year, 100 names that I felt really good about to stick on that uh, arbitrary list. So, But in general, in a typical draft class, Anywhere between 8 and 12 prospects find their way onto the top 100 overall prospects in all of baseball list like, you know, that offseason. And it looks like that's the low end of that band is what we're looking at this year. So up top, it's about average. But as far as depth goes, it's a little bit lacking. And then as far as strengths go, there are always high school pitchers that fall farther than they should on talent. 
I think that's going to happen again this year, not necessarily because it's a deep position, but just because college players are going to bubble to the surface every draft and just always seems to happen. So I think you'll see there's value to be had later in the draft as far as the high school right-handed pitchers are concerned, especially. And then it's weird to say this as a strength of the draft, and I'm sure that we'll talk about this specific thing in depth, but there are a lot of first basemen in this year's draft, which from, you know, if you read any of my offseason org lists, like I demolish first baseman. Like I'm just not interested. There's zero margin for error on the offensive side. You've got the best hitters in major league baseball aging over the first base every single day. Guys are, are getting more decrepit and hurt and just inching their way over the first base. And so when you're looking at high school and college first basemen that have nowhere else to go, they have to do nothing but mash. And so there are a lot of prospects in this year's draft that are first base only guys or first base eventually guys who you have to reconcile that about. And it's a strange draft class primarily because of that. Yeah, I wrote about the first baseman thing last week because I'm of the same mind that like there's nowhere for there to go and the offensive expectations are so high. And like, I don't even really like a lot of the first baseman in this class, like even guys who are projected to go in like the top 10, 15. We're going to actually explain who some of these people are. Brandon McKay, the two way guy out of out of Louisville, like I saw, I guess the last time I saw him live was his freshman year and the powers come along away since then but i like him better as a pitcher than as a hitter and like paven smith of virginia like the the track record for professional development for power guys out of virginia is it's really bad and you know he's not that kind of masher evan white's a really good defender but like are you going to spend a top 15 pick on a good defensive first baseman i just it just speaks to specifically the the lack of polished college bats in general in this draft but like if but like if there's no guys that, that you and I have talked about in years past, like Ian Happ and Kyle Schwarber, like that or, or Michael Conforto, like that profile of hitter, if that doesn't exist at a premium position or at least not at first base, then why wouldn't you like why would you go get that guy if he's a first baseman already? Why wouldn't you spend that top 15, top 20 pick on a high school arm or, or one of these kind of iffy college pitchers who has a little bit of upside? Yeah, Um it's and again, part of the reason that this draft is so bizarre is because people have to do some scouts and executives have to do some mental gymnastics to sort of talk themselves into any of these college hitters at all. So just to talk about some of the guys that you mentioned as far as top of the class hitters go, certainly like there are teams that pr- prefer Brendan McKay from Louisville as a hitter instead of a pitcher. And uh, based on what I've heard, it's like roughly half of the teams in the top, like five or six picks prefer him there. And early in the spring, there was just a a team or two that approached McKay and said, Hey, what do you think? What would you say if I told you that we had you turned in as a hitter? And he just more or less told them it's just, that's just sort of a thing I do when they like, they let me do it when I'm not pitching. So I, I don't know. And so People started to dream on what McKay might be able to do with the bat once he were just to focus on it exclusively because they saw how easy the power was starting to come, just how sort of comfortable and graceful his swing was. And then as the spring wore on and on the mound, his velocity started to dilute down into the upper 80s, that chatter started to increase. So, yeah, that makes him as a hitting prospect sort of bizarre because so much of that projection is totally abstract. 
and just what you anticipate will happen once he gives up pitching. So that makes him strange. And then White, you mentioned, yeah, he's potentially an elite defensive first baseman, Evan White, the first baseman from Kentucky. Uh, he's also a plus runner and arguably athletic enough to be given a try in center field. But the, but there are people who don't want him to move because he might be an elite defensive first baseman and they can't see parting with that. He's also a bats right throws left player of which there have been maybe half a dozen in the big leagues this century. Jason Lane, Cody Ross, Brian Ryan Ludwig. Ludwig. That's that's it. So like there's not a whole lot of precedent for this and we're sort of living in this modern age of draft scouting now that's continuing to evolve but it has caught up in a lot of ways to how we evaluate big leaguers now the samples are much smaller obviously but it involves teams looking for precedent a lot and there's just for players like white there just isn't there just isn't one (laughs) and brent rooker the first baseman at mississippi state who went in the 38th round last year and came back to school and is now a redshirt junior and has just gone off like no one knows what to do with this guy he didn't have a particularly good cape he's just been a beast in the sec slugging like 800 in the sec but he's a right right first baseman in college he's not a good defensive first baseman and the only right Two, there are two right-right, right-throwing, right-hitting college first basemen who have done anything in like the last 15 or 20 years. It's Eric Karros and Paul Goldschmidt, and like that's the end of the list. So, yes, on one hand, you have a guy slugging 800 in the SEC, and it looks like he's got that kind of power to profile at first base. But then on the other hand, you have this weird, specific thing that just, for whatever reason, these guys don't work out. And so teams have spent the last several months trying to figure out what the hell to do with all these guys. And then intermixed with uh, with them are a bunch of other talented players who, you know, are the sorts of prospects you'd see in a typical draft class. Are there more viable two-way players in this draft than usual? Or is it that we are coming around on the idea of a two-way player being viable period because of all the buzz about Shohei Otani and in the majors, Michael Lorenzen and Christian Bethencourt, even if those haven't really worked out, are we just more open to the idea or are there actually more tough calls in that respect this year than usual? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Obviously in every draft class, there are a ton of prospects who do both, especially at the high school level. They're the best athletes on their team. So naturally, if someone's not pitching, he's probably going to be playing somewhere in the field, usually shortstop and vice versa. So two-way players are constantly a thing. I do, I, I totally agree with you that just the public discourse about two-way players is at a place that it hasn't been since I've been like part of this analytical community. It's just, we haven't had that discussion. And I do think the Beth and Court thing uh, and Shohei Otani are the two drivers. But realistically, and it's important to for everyone to realize that as spectacular as some of these guys are at both, uh, ultimately, all but perhaps one of them for a little while is going to be just one, only one. The rigors of de- player development, I think the public generally underestimates. It's just not easy to do either, let alone both. It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to better oneself in professional baseball. There are uh, You're swimming upstream a lot of the time. For most of these guys, economics are difficult to overcome, you know, and to, to train their bodies in ways that allow them to succeed at one thing, let alone both. So the two-way guys in this year's draft that you could have legitimate conversations about them as prospects on both sides of the ball are obviously Brendan McKay, 
Uh, and I think the debate between him hitting and pitching is close enough that you should try to continue to evaluate him as both for a while before you make an ultimate decision. But I do think a decision has to be made at some point. Hunter Green, the right-handed pitcher from Notre Dame High School in California, he would be a first-round prospect as a power-hitting infielder. And I know there are certainly people who think he could stick at shortstop. His actions are fluid and athletic and crisp. And I've seen him make several big league, big league caliber plays at shortstop over the last two years when, since I've been seeing him. But realistically, he's a 17-year-old who's 6'4", 210. He's already like a 35 runner for me. And when that guy's 22 years old, is he going to be able to play shortstop? I think it's worth debating. And once you acknowledge that, then you can start poking other holes in the profile because he's had trouble hitting hittable pitches during uh, elite while facing elite competition. And yeah, there's like plus plus raw power there. So now you're looking at a third baseman with swing and miss issues and power. Uh, and that's not that doesn't hold a candle to what he is on the mound. And then the other two way guys are like Hagen Danner, a catcher and right handed pitcher at Huntington Beach High School. Adam Hastley, the Virginia center fielder, also pitches, but he's a far superior prospect uh, as a center fielder. So I guess, yeah, there's there's some there's some interesting debates to be had. I think ultimately most of them are clear. I have Danner evaluated as a catcher. Most of the industry has him on the mound right now. McKay is the only one where there's there's any serious debate. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty rare for teams to make the wrong decision with a two-way guy, right? Like every now and then you see someone who had that two-way background wash out at hitting or pitching or whatever, and then as sort of a last-ditch effort, he'll go back and do the other thing to to see if that will work out. But it mostly just makes a fun hypothetical or a fun fact when someone succeeds and you say, oh, he was also a really good pitcher or hitter. Maybe he could have done both, but it's fairly rare for a team to change its mind, right? Or for the player to change his mind after he's selected as one or the other? Yeah, there have been situations in the past where the player has wanted to do one thing and the Mm -hmm. team had him evaluated as the other and let him do the thing he wanted and fail to like show him that if you want to get to the big leagues, it's it's going to have to be this way. Obviously, we've seen a lot of catchers and outfielders uh, with big arm strength converted to the mound and some of them work out and some of them don't. Kenley Jansen... Uh, Jason Mott, great. Anthony Ghost is undergoing a transition right now. He was up to 97 off uh, on the mound in high school. And then there are other ones that you just don't hear about. Ramon, have you ever heard the name Ramon Morla? <laughs> don't believe uh, so. Okay, so Morla was a Latin American teenage third baseman in the Mariners system and just couldn't hit. Big bodied kid. It's probably going to have to move to first base and just wasn't going to hit. Moved him to the mound, 97 to 99, touching 100. And, you know, he blew out, had Tommy John, was a minor league free agent signee of, of Atlanta last year. And, you know, he's just sort of just an arm strength guy now in the minor leagues that maybe he'll work out, maybe he won't. So th- a lot of conversions happen that we don't hear about because the guys don't hit. And, and most people generally think that moving from a position to the mound is an easier transition than vice versa because you've lost all those developmental reps hitting in the interim years that it's almost, it's really hard to, to pick those back up. I can't think of, you know, it's, it's, it's rare, I think, to, to find guys who have gone from uh, pitching to hitting. To talk about one of those guys specifically, what do you think about Adam Hazley? Because he is that sort of rare in this draft class, at least, guy who hit in college and, and could stick it up, up the middle position. Yeah, Hazley doesn't always look the part 
mechanically, it's sort of a, a unique swing, but he he's very good defensively in center field. I think he's an above average future center fielder. He was great. I saw him in the ACC tournament in Louisville and absolutely looks the part in center field. So at that point, you know, there's there's enough pressure taken off of the bat because he's at a premium position that you feel pretty good about him hitting enough to play every day. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of power there. It might be 25 plus doubles power, but, uh, and he's a, certainly a top 10 prospect in this class for me. But, uh, but yeah, that's, it's, it's not all that exciting to think about, but he is just a good defensive center fielder with good field to hit. And even though it looks kind of funky, I think it's going to work. So at the, the top of the draft, a lot of the public lists have Hunter Green, the, the high school right-hander, as the, the number one guy. And just the way he's been written, written about, like it would take a special high school right-hander to go number one overall. But it looks like the Twins, and you had Kyle Wright, uh, the righty out of Vanderbilt, going number one to the Twins instead of Hunter Green. Is that mm-hmm. a... Like, are the twins just set on taking somebody who's closer to the majors or is this need or is it like or is Green not actually that kind of special, mind blowing prospect? He certainly has a special quality, the likes of which I have not seen before. And yeah, some of it is a charisma and an affability and a natural ability to deal with the sort of attention that the first pick in in a draft receives. And then athletically, I've never seen a pitcher like this before. Never. Certainly not one that can move out to shortstop and do the things he does and take batting practice and do the things he does. But again, it's important that you don't factor that in to the way you evaluate him because he's not going to be doing those things for you. So yeah, he's going to hit tape measure home runs. I saw him hit balls out of the new Wrigley Field last summer, like out of it where Sammy Sosa used to hit them. But ultimately, he's not going to be doing that stuff. So when you just evaluate him as a pitcher, it's an impeccable frame, 6'4", 205, beautiful delivery, 96 to 98, will touch 101, 102. And then after that, everything else you're projecting on based on his athleticism, but none of it's there yet. The command, bet bet it'll be plus eventually. He's too good of an athlete for it not to be, but it's not there right now. Slider, probably going to be an above average slider when he's done. It's not there right now. Change up, same deal. With right, it's all there. The ceiling on his command probably isn't as high because he's more of a finished product and it's, you know, fringe to average right now. But the breaking ball is already there. The changeup's already there. There are just more pieces in place. And so when I look at those two and line them up, I have them graded evenly. I think you can make a great argument for Green. If you want to bet on yourself, you want to bet on the kid. He's a wonderful young man. I'm all for that. With Wright, I see the repertoire there that I don't yet see with Green. Uh, Scouts and executives have echoed that sentiment, specifically about the breaking ball. It's not a 1-1 breaking ball. He's got a curveball and a slider. I think some people would like to see him pick one. Ultimately, the slider, I think, is the, the favorite there. And so, yeah, I think Minnesota at number one, I've heard them with Wright and McKay more than I have on Green, although Green and potentially Mackenzie Gore, the left-handed high school pitcher from North Carolina, are like the dark horses for the number one overall selection. But when I post an updated mock in the morning, the day of the draft, it'll be either Wright or McKay. 
Before we get into more of the specific names, one more general question. Are there any teams for whom this draft is particularly make or break because of the number of picks they have or the size of the draft pool they have or where their system is and where they are in the competitive cycle, that sort of thing? That's a good question. Houston is definitely an interesting team to look at in this draft. They picked down at 15th, but they have a little bit of extra money and a few extra picks because of the Cardinals hacking scandal. So, yeah, I mean, like it seemed, you know, when the Cardinals signed Dexter Fowler and essentially didn't the, the opportunity for their first round pick to be handed to Houston was sort of off the table. I think Astros fans were a little bit disappointed by that, and I understand that. But it does look like that extra money is going to come in handy. I've got them attached with some players who they might be able to move back to 15 because they have that little bit of extra money to spend. Shane Baz, uh, right-handed pitcher from Texas, high schooler. Some of the elite spin rates measured uh, during the summer showcases last year, up around like 2,700 RPMs, I think, on the breaking ball, definitely way up there. That's all on the Fangraphs sortable uh, board, by the way. If you want to head to the website, I've got all the high school pitchers, trackman numbers on the board, so you can sort through those. But yeah, Bass is like up to 98 with three potential plus pitches. So if he were to be there at 15, that'd be a nice coup for Houston. Cincinnati has multiple picks fairly early. There's not going to be as much underslot dealing going on because the bonus amounts are more uniform. So the uh, the on the margin, there's just less money to be saved, and it's going to be harder to move uh, players down. But so like Houston is in an interesting place and they're not likely, I don't think to be picking as high as even 15 for quite a while. And then uh, the teams that uh, pick in the, in the early thirties, like Cincinnati, Tampa, uh, San Diego, Milwaukee, anytime you have that many picks in the top 50, I think you really need to, to leave day one with a haul. So there's mm-hmm. pressure on those teams to get the names that will be there for them in the thirties. Right. So I want to talk about the guy who another college guy who could stick up the middle possibly and who you actually have going at number 15 in your last mock draft. And that's UC Irvine designated hitter Keston Hura. So I know you were he was your guy early in this draft process. And so I'm just going to clear out and and give you some room to talk about him. Okay. yeah. Keston Hura. It man, it's such a strange thing. This guy's been one of the more prolific college hitters of the last three years at UC Irvine. And I think Big West baseball in general is kind of underrated. So he's mashed there and hit well on Team USA and acquitted himself well on Team USA when, uh, you know, lined up against the other college hitters in this class. And of course, there aren't many of them. So, uh, you know, he's been lined up meet marketed against the best of the best on that team USA collegiate national team and come out ahead. But the problem is he physically cannot throw. There is a lot of talk about him probably needing surgery the moment the ink is dry on his contract. And so no one knows where he's going to fall on the defensive spectrum. I went to go see him at UC Irvine. I get there early for BP. There's above average raw power there. And I'm all about it already because I've seen, you know, the swing on tape. I've seen the bat speed. You can see how quick his hands are. Uh, And then he goes out to take grounders at second base during batting practice and absolutely looks the part at second base. Feet work well. The hands are good. But when he, after he fields the ball, he has to walk the ball over to one of his teammates to hand it to him 
like Scotty Smalls because he like literally cannot throw. And he's not fast enough to pull that off unless the, the arm gets better. Right. So if I haven't turned in on my list as a second baseman, and I think an American League team that has a little bit more margin for error with where he ultimately falls on the defensive spectrum is probably the best fit for him. But if you're looking at him as a purely a second base prospect, then he's the best pure college second base prospect that I can remember. He's a superior prospect to Scott Kingery, who is tearing up double A right now in the Philly system, who I you know thought had slotted in like the back half of the first round. And he ultimately went in the second round of uh, the draft a few years ago out of the University of Arizona. So here is there's just way more raw power there with Yura. Uh, and the same sort of unique bat-to-ball ability. So I think he's a guy who, if the arm, if there are no questions about it, is a top 10 pick. We'd be talking about him the way we were talking about Ian Happ. And you could argue that we should be anyway, because there was doubt about whether or not Happ could play second base. So I think he deserves to be a top 10 pick, or at least considered up there. It's just going to be hard to find a fit, especially when the teams picking in the back of that top 10 are the Brewers and the Phillies and the Diamondbacks who don't have that margin for error if even post-surgery, he still can't throw. What's wrong with the the elbow? Because this has been going on like since the end of last yeah. season, right? And they just, I mean, wouldn't any kind of elbow injury have, you know, they would have been able to operate last offseason yeah. and he'd be good by now. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of aware of the specifics in a way that I can't talk about. And I think part of it is, you know how college teams are and what the culture is like. If he's hitting fine as the DH, do you think the coach is going to recommend that he get a, a, a procedure done? No. Yeah. No. So I think there's an element of that to it. But yeah, like I know that he's seen Dr. Neil Alatraki, who, you know, uh, the doctor from of the, the arm. arm. Yeah. Yeah. So you can infer what you will from that. <laughs> but yeah, so... I don't know. It's it's just an interesting. Again, this is a weird draft. They're all kind of weird. This is the third or fourth one I've covered on the national level, and this is the weirdest one. <laughs> Does the weirdness extend to the predictability of who's going where? Not that that's ever really predictable, and everyone's mock draft right. gets messed up a few picks into it. But do you feel like there's less predictability than usual about? teams attached to certain players and going to see certain players and having pre-Jeff deals with certain players or whatever? Uh, you know, the mock that I posted on Monday or Tuesday felt really good when I submitted it. And then, you know, four <laughs> days later now, it's just, you know, I want to set it aflame. Uh, so I think that part of it is just the process. I think what we know, and ultimately all the, the way it's different with baseball than it is with football and basketball, certainly with football, because we have the opportunity to scout the scouts. Football scouting is done on film for the most part. So I don't know what general manager X is watching on his office computer at 1 a.m., but I do know where, uh, you know, that at Mackenzie Gore's best start of the year, that AJ Preller was there because you got to go see these guys. So that dynamic is unique to baseball. The way the slotting system works in baseball also allows for gamesmanship with the teams. So teams are more apt to throw misinformation at writers mm -hmm. uh, or to put information out there that they might get feedback on that is valuable to them. 
So uh, because of the way the slotting works, there's more BS for me to sift through, I think, than there might be in other uh, in other sports. And obviously, things like scheme fit aren't a thing in baseball. It's just mm-hmm. everyone plays baseball. <laughs> so yeah, there are definitely unique aspects to it. The predictability of it this year doesn't feel a whole lot different than any other year. In fact, I think the top five is, uh, as long as you're willing to say it's this guy or this guy at a given pick and try to guess how the dominoes will fall after that, then it's it's fairly straightforward. I can run it through for you right now if you want. Sure. All right. So the Twins at one, it's either McKay or Wright with Green and Gore as the dark horses. Hunter Green probably goes number two to Cincinnati. I have Mackenzie Gore at three, the lefty high schooler from North Carolina. Low 90s, very advanced command, very advanced secondary stuff. And then four, if McKay gets the four, I think he's the pick for Tampa. If not, they're probably deciding between Wright and uh, Jay Sarah, shortstop, Royce Lewis, high schooler from California. Uh, Elite speed, very good field to hit, big league physicality, probably not a shortstop long-term, probably moves to center field. Uh, so either Wright or Lewis at four. And then the Braves at five are either an underslot deal uh, or somebody like Shane Baz or whoever's left among the five names that I've mentioned already, Lewis or Wright would be the favorites. And then after that, there's more variability. But I think those are the five best players in the class. And I think they're probably going to be the first five picks in some order. And so that gives me a pretty reasonable chance to not look like a schmuck tomorrow. Hmm. All right, let's take a quick break here for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more from Eric. There's nothing like dining al fresco on a cool summer night with a great glass of wine, but finding new wines to try can be so overwhelming, especially when you're at the store and you're faced with aisles of choices. Thankfully, NakedWines.com offers exclusive wines that you can't find anywhere else, making it easy to discover something new and delicious all the time. Their unique business model connects everyday wine drinkers and winemakers more closely than ever before, granting you access to more than 400 limited production wines, each one a discovery, the passion project of an experienced artisan who makes wines thanks to your support. Better yet, NakedWines.com removes a huge chunk of costs that in a traditional wine business would typically be passed on to you, so you save up to 60% on the wines you love. Plus, the winemaker gets to spend more time in the vineyard and less in the office, which means the wines taste better. And with over 2 million customer reviews, you can easily determine which wine is right for you. What's more, you get $100 off your first order. Try 12 of NakedWines.com's favorites for only $79. Just visit NakedWines.com MLB to claim this offer. Again, that's NakedWines.com MLB. Today's episode is also brought to you by SeatGeek, smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps, and SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing the best plays of the year in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. If you get it too, you can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, you can instantly find seats. doesn't even have to be seats at a sporting event. SeatGeek also has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available. And whatever event you're attending, SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Best of all, our listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, 
and then enter the promo code RINGERMLB. That's one word. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. And now let's get back to more on the MLB Draft. So apart from every good college bat pretty much being a first baseman, and uh, we could talk about Jake Berger or Jaron Kendall. (laughs) Sorry, Jake Berger, well... Jake Berger, the third baseman, and I'm making air quotes right now, out of Missouri State. Or there are uh, teams that like him there, Michael. No, no. Like, yeah, there I are. know you said he like <laughs> fell over twice while taking infield. Yeah, uh, the other day, and I don't know. Like, and someone it's, asked me, it's nominative like, determinism. He's not like, <laughs> he's not like grotesquely fat, but like, no, that's not. not a third baseman's. It's not a third baseman's body. Not typically, no. And I talked to someone and they were like, are you really going to move him down because of that? And I was like, yes, yes, I am. He can yeah. really hit. And Missouri State, again, the data is creeping into the draft. My precious, precious draft. Missouri State has a track man. Jake Berger is among the nation's uh, most superlative college hitters when it comes to exit velocities, as far as what I've heard from people in the industry. And teams look at that. And so he's going to go. I think his floor is 17 to seattle anyway what i was where i was going after that was after Wright and mckay really the college the crop of college pitchers is kind of a mess because everybody's got something wrong with them like alex fieda right-hander out of florida who was one of my guys to go at the top of the draft uh beginning of the season command and velocity backed up jb bacascus out of north carolina is short griffin canning out of ucla got used too much south carolina's got two guys who probably have first round talent in will crow and clark schmidt but both of them have tommy john in their history and uh, we have a don't forget there's a registered sex offender now yeah you've got seth seth romero the left-hander at houston who probably is top 15 stuff who's been kicked off the team several times it's a weird draft. Yeah. So pick one of them, I guess. And can I pick one you didn't mention? Yeah, sure. Well, okay. So obviously David Peterson in Oregon doesn't have anything wrong with him. That's another guy I think deserves top 10 consideration that isn't getting it. But if I had to pick a guy with warts and I'd exclude JB Bukaskis from that group because he's just had a couple bad starts recently. Uh, Tristan Beck. Yeah, Ben's Davidson team really roughed him up in the region. Yeah, they did. (laughs) Yeah, I was watching that between games in Fayetteville and none of us could believe it. But yeah, my guy would be Tristan Beck. That's the right-hander from Stanford who is a draft-eligible sophomore who, like Cal Quantrill, a righty from Stanford last year, came into this season with an injury that was going to supposed to keep him out for a while and ended up keeping him out for the entire season. Now, Quantrill was Tommy John recovery and Beck is a back injury. And what's interesting about Beck is he didn't pitch a whole lot as a senior in high school either because he dealt with injuries as well. They were more random. He had a concussion from like getting hit with a ball or something like that. So like he had the injuries weren't as alarming as a back injury would be. But last year as a freshman, he was like 90, 93 chance for an average breaking ball chance for a plus changeup, and that's the kind of guy who goes in the middle of the first round but he's got a stress fracture in his back 9094 with a potential plus changeup. though if i'm picking between him and some of the other college arms at the back of the first round guys who when you just evaluate them are probably relievers when 
all is said and done, like I'd rather have Beck. You bring up Quantrill and then you think of other Stanford uh, right-handers who go at the top of the draft and you think of Mark Appel. And, you know, I sort of alluded to this with my comment about Virginia hitters and you talk about Kyle Wright and you think of Carson Fulmer and David Price and the other guys that they've, the other first-round pitchers that they've developed, Sonny Gray. How much do you buy into college reputations for player development like and i guess obviously you'd want to look at at a uh, a college coach's propensity to overuse his pitchers but is there anything beyond that that you think oh this guy's a vandy kid so he's going to be good or this guy's a fullerton kid so you know he's going to throw strikes but god only knows about his workload like how much of that seeps into your analysis yeah certainly the pitcher overuse issue is the most pervasive one UCLA has had a lot of guys get hurt recently, and uh, the medicals on Griffin Canning are apparently concerning. Uh, James Caprellian, of course, is the most recent example of that. TCU has that reputation as well. Matt Perk is the most prominent example of that. Rice, John Duplantier, who the Diamondbacks took in last year's second round, had injury issues throughout college and is pitching very well right now in the Midwest League, 93-96 with a plus slider. But of course, Rice has also had Joe Savory. Help me out with this, Michael. The Rice uh, arm Savory, West is so Townsend, long. Jeff Neiman. Just yeah. like just this year, they blew up Glenn Otto's arm. Otto, yeah. University of Virginia pitchers also have had had uh, Danny Holton, uh, but they've had like a bunch of pitchers who have flamed out as well. The Stanford swing thing is real. Scouts organizations are concerned about hitters going to Stanford for three years and essentially unlearning anything that made them interesting and explosive offensive prospects in high school. I've heard stories about players uh, at Stanford getting reamed out during batting practice for hitting home runs during BP. Uh, I've seen Stanford as a team take batting practice. It's like watching paint dry on someone's wall because all the swings are so similar. It's like a weird cult um, so there are definitely concerns about some colleges and the way they go about uh, developing players because the college game is just different. But in general, especially this year, it's just you haven't heard as much about it because there just aren't as many college players that people are talking about up top. And you alluded to the data earlier, the influx of TrackMan information. How has that change things? Do you think that that has led to certain guys climbing draft boards significantly? There is an article by Sam Miller recently showing that, say, last year's draft and the Moneyball drafts didn't really look any different in terms of the size and the weight and the bodies of the players taken, Mm -hmm. despite that idea of Billy Bean saying back then that we're not selling jeans here. We are still largely selling jeans, and it turns out that probably good bodies are often correlated to good outcomes and good players. and. Uh Obviously, there are some exceptions there, but to what extent has it changed things? And do you think that we will start to see guys who wouldn't have been taken as high taken high because of that data? Or is it just sort of one of many pieces of information that teams are taking into account? Yeah, it's it depends on the it depends on the club. There are certain teams who are a little more invested in making decisions like where uh, the data you're referring to plays a larger role in their decision processes than other teams. Uh, It's probably the teams that you could guess off the top of your head. Last year, if you go look at Pittsburgh's draft from last year, there are some random high school names near the top that when they came off the board, uh, other teams were a little bit puzzled. And I've just heard that there were workouts that were track manned 
that were particularly impressive and played into uh, their decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Cleveland, the Dodgers, the Yankees, the teams, Atlanta, the teams that you would know based on what you know about those orgs uh, are into this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I assume it's too soon to say whether that has worked out for them or not, because we're just talking about the last couple of years here. I can tell you that the Do- I mean I think the Dodgers have killed their last two draft classes, man. Last year's uh, getting Walker Bueller late two drafts ago was tremendous. Last year's draft class, Mitchell White from Santa Clara, right-handed pitcher from Santa Clara, who's hurt right now but uh, looked terrific as a pro after he signed, and then early this spring, DJ Peters, who they got from a small junior college in Nevada. Has, I've gotten Jason Worth comps on him, probably because he looks like him, but he's a talented player that shouldn't have been around when he was. So, yeah, I think there are some teams who have found a gem or two. The variance with these players inherently is high. So there's so much noise to sift through in this regard that it might be hard for us to find anything meaningful. But there are definitely some indicators. And I think, if anything, you don't see it up top. You see it in the 15th round. You see it in the 20th round, in the 11th round, when uh, your teams are sifting through their priority guys whose uh, signing bonuses, if they're under a certain amount, don't count against their bonus pool. That's mm-hmm. when these these players are found. It's not in the first or second round. The, those are the players who are heavily scouted. And yeah, the data plays a role in the decision-making as well. But your analytics department is making picks for you in the 15th, 16th round. That's how guys like Max Schrock are found. Former Gamecock Max Schrock. Yeah, there you go. That's how some of these relief pitchers that are moving quickly through the minors, despite being 17th, 21st round picks a few years ago, are found. Like, watch Phil Matone, the new Padres relief pitcher. Watch his spin rates when they start becoming publicly available. That's how some of these guys are found. So it's more of a sleeper finding process now than it is a way that decisions at the very top of the draft are being made. Mm-hmm. And what you just said made me think of this question. A lot of the reason that the MLB draft is not as big a draw as other sports drafts is because it takes a long time for players to get to the majors if they get there at all. So who's the guy who might go in the first round who we could see really soon? I don't know whether it's a, a closer who could come up quickly or a starter. Is there a guy who we could be seeing, say, in this postseason or, you know, oh. starting next year with the the big league club, someone who's a polished product, finished product, or is in some position where he could make some kind of impact really quickly. Yeah. Bauman and I typically play this game every year where we pick the first pitcher and first p- hitter from each draft class to debut. Um, I think most of my guys haven't made it to the majors at all. Really? It's like three years. Well, I had, cause last year it was, I picked Zach birdie. And right, he's not we, there yet, but he'll but be he there. could be though. He should I, be probably. I remember a couple years ago. I think I I picked Brandon Cook out of Dallas Baptist, oh, and yeah. like, all right, he's he's never going to pitch in the majors. So I'm I'm not very good at this game. Just as a a disclaimer. Well, we nailed the Schwarber thing. Yeah, we did. And who was our 2015 guy? Was it Hap? It was Hap, Hap was my 2015 guy. And that last my year, 2015 guy too. Swanson, Bregman, and Benintendi all got there before Hap did. Yeah, last year my guy was Brian Reynolds out of Vanderbilt, who's in uh, the yeah. Giants system now. Yeah, I think he sort of had a slow start in the Cal League. Okay, but for this year, you know, the, my default is always the relievers. So Nate Pearson, a junior college pitcher from Florida, who was up to 102 in a bullpen a few weeks ago. 
already has a plus breaking ball right now. He's a guy who, if a team wanted to, he could move very quickly. I have him going in the early 20s. Uh, I've heard that he's canceled a workout with the team who picks in the late 20s, which is probably a sign that he's got a deal in place in the early 20s. The Blue Jays have multiple picks. I think they pick at 22 and 26 off the top of my head. They That'd be a candidate, uh, but they're not exactly a team who desperately needs help at the big league level because they're in the middle of some sort of race right now. They're off to kind of a slow start. It's not sort of the candidate as far as a team fit for moving a guy very quickly. So that's one of this. As far as the hitters go, Evan White's defense is already in place. So that's one huge. He could play defense right now in the big leagues at first base. So that's one aspect of the profile that's uh, that's that's already there. Some other hitters who might do it. I guess Hazley is the other guy who the bat to ball skills are advanced and you're not necessarily looking for him to develop power in the minor leagues because his place on the defensive spectrum is so favorable already. So I'll say Hazley for hitters and Nate Pearson as far as the pitchers are concerned. Mm-hmm. And my last one. You mentioned just how variable all of this is, how inconsistent the results are from year to year. You could have a great process and make picks that are smart at the time based on what you know, and it just might backfire anyway. And you can look retroactively and say that this team or that team has been good or bad at drafting over a certain period. But how confident are you going into a draft that you can predict who's going to have a good draft or even who's going to draft well, regardless of how it actually turns out, because there's so much randomness. There's a lot of turnover in scouting staffs and scouting directors that it's hard to say that a certain team is is great at this or terrible at this. So how much spread do you think there is or, or how confident would you be saying, yeah, this is an area where this team really has an edge over that team? Teams allocate their resources pretty dynamically. So at a given time, a team might be far less interested in the draft as far as their upper level executives are concerned than another team whose top level executives might be driving the entire bus in a given year. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly some teams in the short time that I've been doing this who have shown a proclivity for playing draft games in a way that really benefits them more than others. There are some teams who I've heard have sent high-ranking executives to see players that I don't think they have any prayer of getting, uh, which to me is a sign that they're not allocating resources properly and is a little bit of a red flag. But again, we're talking about teams picking in the back half of the first round for whom the draft is just less, it it factors less into what the day-to-day gnashing of teeth is about. Certainly much less than... Uh, Atlanta and Cincinnati, whose executives are drafting to not have a horrible big league product. So there is certainly some disparity. How that manifests itself in a way that is measurable, I have no idea. So I want to end on an extremely non-draft question and one that's barely even a prospect question. Um, I was listening to your most recent Fangraphs audio, and you... You mentioned Jake Cronenworth, who's a second baseman in the Rays system. Um, I bring him up because the year I covered the Big Ten for D1 baseball, he was he played for Michigan. He played all over the infield. He was there sometimes their Friday night starter, sometimes their closer. He was probably the most fun player in that conference that year. And I didn't think for a second he would have any sort of professional career. And you brought him up like he was and then didn't explain. So I'm going to make you go deep on on Jake Cronenworth before you have go. Have you looked at his numbers this year? I, I 
thought I did. I didn't think they were very good, but he had like a 20 some game on base streak. He saw big league time during spring training. Cronenworth at Michigan was a two way. Interesting that we bring it back to this. A two way player played in the middle infield and pitched. And I preferred him as a pitcher entering the draft as basically a two or three pitch athletic reliever. He was a smaller guy. He was an older guy. He's already 22 at this time last year. Uh, he's maybe six feet tall, 91, 93 with like two average secondary pitches. But Tampa brought him on and not only have they left him as a position player, but they've moved him to shortstop full time and he's hitting 288, 387, 384 in high A Florida State League right now. And like I said, he was he was on the big league roster at times during spring training, looked overmatched there. But he's just one of these guys who is playing exceptionally well. And I wrote more about him on the raise list than I did about any other player who made the honorable mention sections on my org lists. So there's a lot of information about Cronenworth on there. The Fangraphs page redesign has all the prospect lists linked on the homepage now. Uh, so you can get right there very easily and check it out. And yeah, ultimately, he might be like the 24th or 25th man on a roster whose value is firmly entrenched in his uh positional versatility and very little else but he's more of a prospect than you typically find in the seventh round of a given draft and he's an interesting he and uh brandon Lowe, the other middle infielder on that port charlotte stone crabs team are having tremendous seasons and there were great college players who people didn't think much of as pro prospects but they're starting to make some noise cool all right. Well, I think talking about Jake Cronenworth, who is hitting in high A, is a really good place to end our draft <laughs> review episode. So, I, Ben, I tried to keep this as on topic as possible, but yeah, you did pretty well. I could I could only do so much. Um, so, we'll be back on Thursday with another episode. Uh, you can read Eric uh, at Fangraphs. You can follow him on Twitter at Longenhagen. And thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome, guys. Thanks, Eric. change. The weather changes. Your mood definitely changes. Eric's mock draft changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear while knowing you'll score a great price and a great place to stay. So download the Hotel Tonight app to find seriously amazing deals now.